0: ocean bites out
1: loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world we hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way Hello! Thanks for joining me today on our podcast. First off, can you tell me your name and your preferred pronouns?
0: Yeah, my name is Megan Davies and my pronouns are she, her, and it's exciting to be here. Great, awesome. I'm also excited to have you. (laughs) So to start
1: off, can you tell me what you're currently researching and maybe share a fun fact if you want to share a fun fact?
0: Yeah, so I um, would consider myself a deep sea ecologist. So I study the invertebrate communities on these really cool underwater mountain features called seamounts. So they're these yeah massive underwater mountains that rise you know a thousand or more meters above the sea floor, and um, I'm essentially interested in where invertebrates live on these mountains. And then how their communities might shift or change given different climate change threats so um, i'm in my second year of my master's right now and so the first chapter of my master's is looking specifically at coral and sponge species and um on the west coast here seamounts on the west coast they are the species are being threatened by like a loss of oxygen um and so i'm looking at that for my first chapter and then For my second chapter i'm looking at seamounts off the coast of portugal in the azores marine park and it's not confirmed but the plan is to um to build a vulnerability framework for mollusks in that area um and i love deep sea facts uh and ocean facts in general i think my go-to deep sea fact is that animals in the deep sea tend to get so they have shallow water counterparts so you'll see like a a crab in in shallow waters and then a you know similar crab species in the deep they have the tendency to get either really really tiny or super large and so if you and i are a regular size now um if we were the shallow water counterpart if we were moving into the deep and evolved to have this like giganticism, we would be the size of, do you know the white uh, statue of like Christ over Rio? Oh yeah. The gigantic one. And so if you've seen photos of people standing underneath that, that's the difference in size comparison of a uh, shallow water versus like deep water species. Wow. So it's huge, yeah.
1: That's (laughs) incredible. So essentially I would have a mini me if I lived in the deep. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. That's
1: so cool. Wow. So how did you get involved with this research? What kind of led you to your interest in the ocean, wanting to become a scientist? Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I I really fell in love with the ocean when I was 14. Um, I mean, I liked it prior to that, but I really got in, you know, in, completely enamored with the... Um, underwater communities when I was 14 because I got my uh, junior patty license at that at that age and I had already been really really interested in conservation uh, but more terrestrial side of things and but when I was 14 and I had to get had to do my open water dive somewhere I went to the Gulf of Mexico and I went down and it was just Absolutely insane! My fourteen-year-old brain just exploded. <laughs> um, like there was just everything you could possibly imagine to look at—just schools of fish and beautiful corals—and it was just teeming with life. But that alone, I don't think, would have been enough for me to switch from terrestrial. Um, you know, my love of terrestrial and, and my my goal at the time to be like a terrestrial ecologist <laughs> to a marine ecologist. Um, but what ended up happening was in very, very short, short succession, I was diving in Mexico and then was diving in the Mediterranean. And I went and did two dives uh, in Greece. And all I saw were plastic bags and then mm. one sea cucumber. And the sea cucumber was amazing. I mean, I loved it. <laughs> it was the star of the show. But um, it was just a really in-your-face example of the detrimental impacts that humans are having on the natural world. And it was, I think, my first very tangible experience with with, um, yeah, just the decimation of of food webs and what overfishing uh, does to our oceans. And so as soon as I saw that difference um, and what it should look like versus then what it looked like in the Mediterranean, I was hooked Um, and. Yeah, very quickly decided that it was marine biology that I wanted to do, um, but then I got really interested in the deep sea. Actually, quite late into my my undergrad degree, I had thought the deep sea was really really boring. Um, I and I think it was because it was always just maybe one class out of a whole course, and so they told us the same things all the time. Like it's vast, it's empty, you know. Well, anglerfish you know, fish are interesting, you know. Like it was yeah. it was always kind of the same facts. And I ended up signing up for this course called, at UVic, called Frontiers in Marine Biology. And I just thought it was going to be like new marine science. We were just going to talk about new papers and stuff. And I needed a marine course to get the marine biology concentration. (laughs) And I went the first day of class and I sat down and it was the last class that was taught by uh, Verena Tunicliffe, who is like the absolute deep sea legendary lady. And... She let us know in the first class that it was going to be a deep sea course. And I was sitting there just thinking, oh, no. Like, do I get up and leave? Like, this is my, this this sounds like it's going to be awful. I think the deep sea is boring. You know, do I just slip out the back right now? (laughs) And I was so disheartened. And then I think it was by the end of the first lesson, by the end of the first class, I was just gobsmacked. Um, and yeah, learning from the absolute legend herself and, you know, got introduced to seamounts very quickly and then just immediately was like, this is, this is it. Um, so yeah. Well, it's good you (laughs) stayed there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You said you did a little bit with terrestrial ecology beforehand. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and kind of how that switch over, was that difficult for you to switch from terrestrial to marine And did you have any second thoughts, I guess, about doing marine before you you switched over?
0: Yeah, so I I ended up going to college in a small town in Ontario, um, Fleming College, their um, environmental school. I went there for a course called um, ecosystem management. And it was a two-year program, and you would learn a lot of... uh, a lot of things to do with more like terrestrial and aquatic so Mm -hmm. things like land surveys aquatic surveys a lot of like gis um there was a indigenous emphasis so we did environmental and indigenous law and it was it was amazing i actually loved it it was um hard to convince myself to go back to to marine biology because i did that first and um i I loved the courses where we focused on, like, holistic restoration and, yeah, conservation. Um, so, yeah, I, my original kind of post-secondary research was really in more Ontario-based terrestrial studies, um, and that's kind of more what I grew up with, my mum's my partner uh works for the toronto region conservation authority and she used to always take me out on field surveys and stuff so she started teaching me from when i was five years old onwards to to care about the terrestrial world um but it was a pretty easy transition i think because for me it was never really about loving more one system more than the other it was um I was just interested in in doing a career that would end up helping in some way so i I wanted to to do research that would inform you know management or policy or um, conservation efforts. and so I think I would have been happy no matter which system I ended up in but um yeah, as I said, I just got really obsessed with this the the I think just the the marine side of things felt very dire, um, and so it was a pretty easy, yeah, it was a pretty easy transition. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the things that you study, at least for me, in in, in between my undergrad and then uh, my college diploma, it was a lot of ecology based um, questions and systems, and so that there's a lot of there's a lot of crossover.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like you were able to really take the skills that you learned in your undergrad and like through that experience over to marine ecology and just the passion for it is yeah. really evident and especially when you are confronted with something like tons of plastic while you're diving. Yeah. It's just really hard to just turn away Turn away from that.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So moving on a little bit, what does a normal day as a grad student look like for you?
0: Uh, lots of meetings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I... I mean, I think the joys of being a grad student is that you have this flexibility that you never have again of really just kind of designing your days how you want, um, which is an absolute luxury. Um, I, yeah, my, my days usually, I usually have at least a few meetings each day. And so with whatever time left I have in my day, then I have to, it's constantly a juggling act between working on my two different chapters um reading like constantly reading uh papers to do with my work and, and work related to it uh doing things outside of my master's so things like outreach as well or um we just came from one of the meetings so you know um like more internal uvic programs that uh are more on like a volunteer base and yeah so it's just kind of a juggling act between doing things to do with your actual project, and then everything else that comes along with it. But the the joy is that um, I can make my days kind of as different as I want it to be. But I'm a creature of habit. So I mean, I I, I try to treat it as much like a nine to five job as I can and come in, do my emails, and then my meetings and get to work. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it is, it is really nice being a grad student and just having your own schedule. But when you're not in the office, are you doing field work? What does it look like when you're not on campus?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I am one of those rare grad students, I feel like, who I'm using data that's been collected already. So I'm using um, the data that I'm using has come from expeditions that happened in 2017 and 2018. And so I don't have to go out and collect any of my own field work, not to say that I wouldn't want to. And um, in next year, I should be going on a cruise just to just to get the experience. But so for me, I mean, I yeah, I try to do my my grad work as like a nine to five job. And then outside of that, I just try to have work life balance. So I'm really into cycling um, and I mean, the West Coast is beautiful, so there's a lot of places to go with friends, go on walks, things like that. Um, and then I try to do a lot of like the outreach stuff outside of um, outside of normal hours. So uh, I'm part of Skype a Scientist and um, the peer Uvic peer mentorship program and things like that. So.
1: And also ecostats, which is amazing and super helpful for all of the UVic grad students in the biology department. <laughs> <It's> so helpful. <laughs> so we've already talked about a lot of your passions for the ocean and like how much you are interested in conservation and research and doing all of this outreach stuff. But what's something that's been maybe difficult for you along your journey as a scientist, as a researcher? As a, a woman working in science,
0: yeah. So I think my my main two challenges, um, being in grad school, have been. So I kind of think about it in like I have a concrete challenge, and then I have a mental challenge. And so my concrete challenge has been, and bringing it back to ecostats, so the meeting <laughs> that we just came from, I. I am not a statistician. I, you know, my my brain is doesn't work that way. Like I'm, I'm just not a very um, analytical person, and so I have always struggled with math and and, and uh, statistics. And and you know, yeah, that's just not my strong suit. And so I think you know that is that is a very concrete challenge that I have to deal with. But I think it then kind of plays up the mental challenge, which I think most grad students have, which is the um, imposter syndrome. And I had wicked imposter syndrome. I think, you know, it was heightened by this fact that one of the things we say, you know, you're kind of told you need to be good at to be a scientist is stats, is math, is, you know, the coding. And I'm so not good at it that, it really played up the already um, overwhelming feeling of, of imposter syndrome. So when I started, um, when I started grad school, I used to refer to me getting into grad school as I had, I had, you know, snuck my way in, or I had talked my way in, um, things like that. Like, it was just this overwhelming feeling that My supervisor was somehow duped and she would she would, you know, realize that I wasn't supposed to be here. And it was because, you know, we're we're yeah, we're taught that that scientists have to really have these like analytical brains, which I don't have. So those have been my like two major challenges.
1: Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And I think it's really important that we do talk about these issues because imposter syndrome is so prevalent, but not a lot of people talk about it and it's just like something that's kind of hidden away yeah or we don't really think that other people are dealing with it and I think a lot of people deal with it all the time like yeah. I've dealt with it also in the past still sometimes deal with it yeah and it's like a continuous conversation that I think we don't have enough in academia and in science in general yeah so thanks for sharing
0: yeah my pleasure yeah I think it was I mean it became really obvious when I started because I'm I that was one thing like I'm 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 the first to admit that I'm not great at stats. Um, and so when I was feeling really overwhelmed with the imposter syndrome, I mean, I was talking to everybody about it. And it was really amazing how many grad students felt the exact same way. And it just goes to show, I mean, if everybody's feeling that way, then, you know, you can't all be right, right? Like, you know, True. <laughs> we, we all got in for a reason. And I think I was just completely... Overlooking my strengths and then um, focusing on on my weaknesses and then wondering why why the hell I got you know in, in in into grad school, but it's just yeah like we can't all be imposters so
1: right and it sounds like you found a really good support system within the other grad students and within the department that you're able to talk about it which is really good
0: yeah yeah I mean I think it is I think that's one of the things that's become really really obvious <clears throat> to me when I was in, you know, in this past year of grad school is that it's whatever you're feeling, the the likelihood is you're just not alone. Um, and it, yeah, there is really that sense of comfort when, you know, misery loves company, but it's, it's yeah, their power is in, in numbers and um, yeah, certainly it's it's comforting when you when you see these people who you look up to, you know, when you look around your peers and you and you see these brilliant people, and if they're also feeling the same way, then it's yeah, it's quite it's quite comforting. <laughs> yeah, it's really good to know that you're
1: not alone. And maybe it's also a reflection on the system of academia that it also needs to
0: change. I mean absolutely. I mean, I think so when I was when I was in high school, I was specifically told by my some some of my high school teachers not to go into sciences. They were like, you are not a scientist. This is not your strength. Do not pursue this. Wow. I dropped out of grade 12 bio. My my physics professor was just constantly disappointed in me. And yeah, I was I was absolutely rubbish in uh, the sciences when I was in high school. And I think we're kind of really taught we have this this idea that scientists are very analytical, you know, we're taught that we have to be unfeeling to be unbiased. And which I can't tell you a scientist that I'm around these days that isn't completely passionate and, and has an emotional connection to what they're doing. But yet we, you know, we, we grow up thinking that, you know, you have to be really good at these. Yeah, you have to be good at stats. You have to be good at math. You have to be emotionally unattached to be a good scientist. And so, I was—I didn't fit the mold, and I was told to be, you know, a writer or a, a counselor or something that was more to do with, you know, human interactions and, and communication. And it's wild to me, you know, and I think that also the played into my pretty overwhelming sense of imposter syndrome because the mold that I had in my head just didn't fit what I was what I was taught what I was supposed to be as a scientist but it's it took a lot of thinking about the fact that um, to help combat this you know imposter syndrome that you know if everybody in a room is, really analytical really logical you know really good at the stats and they produce a paper no one's going to necessarily care about it I mean that's not going to that's not going to change policy that's not not going to get the um the public all excited and passionate about certain things like conservation and things like that and so it doesn't really implement change of course it's it it's vitally important like you need the science you need the the facts to back it up but then you still need their you know everybody has their own strengths and so you still need those scientists who are better at communicating who are better at who are more artsy you know who are better at depicting you know taking the science by words and depicting it in in graphics for for people who are more visual learners to to understand and so there's this whole other um Way in which you can actually interact with science and be a scientist and still be just as valid of a scientist or a researcher, without being essentially a data monkey, Um, which I'm not good at being a data monkey. So, (laughs) it took a while to, yeah, to just to focus on, you know, what are my strengths and can that still go hand in hand with being a scientist and and it can. Like you don't, you know, you don't necessarily have to be good at all of the traditional avenues of being a scientist. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And I think it really is important that more and more people are breaking the mold because, you know, like growing up, I don't know if you had the same image as I did of a scientist where it's a guy in a white lab coat, just standing at, you know, a counter doing something with a pipette and that is literally know? my yeah. father.
0: It's literally my father. So yeah. my dad is a, <laughs> exactly him. My dad is a professor at the University of Toronto and he uh, teaches bone engineering and biomaterials. And so I grew up in his lab. He used to bring us in as kids and he would be in his white coat and he'd have us and he would, you know, if he still had work to do, he used to put us in front of exp- in, in, experiments and he would give us pipettes to just do it ourselves. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean that was exactly the the um, the image of a scientist that I had in my head growing up. Like it was, you know, my 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 dad standing there in his white lab coat. So yeah, <laughs> I I definitely definitely had that growing up. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's really important what we're doing. I think breaking the mold is making science more accessible to people. That's mm-hmm. what we're trying to do with this podcast. That's what you're trying to do with a lot of your outreach. And I think it's important for making science both more collaborative and more inclusive.
0: Yeah. So awesome job. (laughs) I also just think it's, you know, I've been really fortunate to have um, some wonderful and fascinating people around me who it's wonderful to really see this shift in people being really honest about their shortcomings or about things that challenges to them. So one of my supervisors, for instance, um, Dr. Sharice Dupree, she works with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And she is this powerhouse um, public speaker. She had me hooked the first time I, I saw her pu- you know, doing a presentation. I went up to her immediately. It was like, I need to work with you. And we've been working together ever since. Um, but she's really, really honest about the fact that she's dyslexic. And the fact that she, the first time she tried doing university, she dropped out because it just wasn't, yeah, like, it. you know, university is really hard for people who are dyslexic. And so she went this really non-traditional avenue, but now she is in this really successful position. She's doing amazing science and she communicates it to so many people around the world. And yeah, I just think it's super important and amazing that these people are willing to speak really honestly about about their their challenges. And so it makes yeah, it makes science just more accessible to so many different kinds of people. Yeah, which I
1: think is especially important now with all the challenges we're facing with climate change and ocean conservation and everything. We need as many people as possible on board with us. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And I think it's really important that people are aware of all these issues that we've talked about today and also just how awesome doing research is in general. So is there anything else that you wanted to add? Anything you wanted to share to our listeners out
0: there? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest privileges that I've had being a graduate student has been, um, yeah, just building this community, like rubbing shoulders with with so many amazing budding scientists and science, you know, science giants. And... Um, I really do think that it kind of takes a village when it comes to, to science, and it's so important for collabor like to, to, to do proper research. I, I'm, I'm a very big advocate for um, collaboration. And I guess for my own work, one of the things that I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of is that the so the research that I do in the Pacific, all of the um, the sea mounts are co managed by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and then also the Coastal First Nations. So, um, for instance, there's a there is a sea mount that's really important to the um, to the Haida people because it's based in their creation story. So Skunking, Clisbowie. and I I'm really excited that there are a lot of projects like this out there that. Kind of help us step away from this siloed view of science that we have, where, and, 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 you know, stepping away from that and kind of incorporating other versions of knowledge. So, you know, traditional First Nations knowledge and um, citizen science. And I just, it's, yeah, it's just super exciting to me that um, there are a lot of projects out there that are again kind of breaking the mold and stepping away from what we traditionally think of as science and scientists and um incorporating these different people and different minds different cultures and it's if any of your listeners if that's the kind of stuff that they're interested in kind of you know uh, blending those two worlds together then there are lots of projects out there that are that are starting to do this and take it more seriously so
1: yeah Yeah, it seems like an emerging direction. And the more people we can get started on this, the better, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks for your time today. It was really awesome talking to you and wishing you the best with your research. Thank you so much.
0: It's so great to be here. Thanks.